This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. Well, Sarah, here we are at the airport. The morning fog is rolling in, and I'm sorry, but the podcast just has to get on that airplane. Yep, it's been a good run. We've had a good time here, but I suppose we'll always have Seeing and Believing. The opinions of two podcasters don't amount to a hill of beans in this crazy old world, but we're at least going to have one last great episode before the airplane flies off into the mist. Listeners, it's episode 400. It's the last episode of Seeing and Believing, and we're going to sing our swan song for you today. And we're going to do it in grand style. First up, we're going to have a conversation about the ethos of faithful film criticism. Yeah, and we're also going to be sharing some of our favorite memories of the show, as well as a few movies that, try as we might, we just can't get out of our heads. Kevin, I think this is the start of a beautiful podcast. Here's looking at you, listeners. And here's looking at episode 400 of Seeing and Believing. Welcome to episode 400, listeners. It came much faster than I expected, uh, and it's now here, and now we got to kind of find a way to put a button on this whole thing. So no pressure or anything, Sarah. <laughs> I'm sure we'll do a great job. I I have confidence in us. Um, I I think we've got some interesting stuff to talk about here. You know, for our, the show's swan song, there's so much that's gone into 400 episodes, eight years of the podcast that, you know, there's there's not any one thing that probably could completely sum up everything that's kind of happened mm-hmm. <laughs> into the microphone over that time. So I guess we were what we were thinking of is we weren't going to like try to put some grand statement out there in terms of uh you know what our favorite movies ever were or list out the the movies that you know made us into critics or the the five movies that every Christian needs to watch. Mm-hmm. That seemed a little bit much. Yeah. So I guess you know we talked about this ahead of time obviously Sarah and what we settled on was kind of more of a free-ranging conversation, just chatting about why we go to the movies and what we think about when we, what we think about when we think about movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's going to be kind of a, a free-ranging conversation. I'm kind of hoping that, that it'll be kind of a, both a nice change of pace and also a nice little bookend on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so doing a lot at once here. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. Well, and it's, fitting because you and Wade kicked off the show with a conversation about how Christians should engage with movies in the first place um, with a guest, uh, Josh Larson of Think Christian and Film Spotting was on that episode as well. And so um, I thought it would be interesting to kind of have another version of that conversation too. One, because I really wish that I could have been a participant in that original conversation. I think it's a really good episode. Um, but two, I was also curious to know um 
how eight years of doing the show has shifted that for you, if it's changed anything, or if you've kind of strengthened or solidified any of the things that you said in that original conversation as well. Yeah, well, <laughs> like, first of all, thank you for saying that's a really good episode. Mm -hmm. I actually, uh, I was going to go back and listen to that episode before recording tonight. And I, I couldn't bring myself to do it over the last couple of weeks, just because those early episodes of Seeing and Believing, just to my ear, are so rough compared to the the routine that Wade and I, and then you and I, fell into. That man, going back and listening to those early episodes, it's uh, it's a little bit like uh, I I don't know, I, I I couldn't cope. But um, it is an interesting question because a lot of water has gone under that bridge. Mm -hmm. um, eight years is longer than anything else I've done. Uh, any other single project I've done in my adult life. Mm. Um, and it's a long time to keep doing the same thing. And so, of course, things are going to change. And I am kind of interested in revisiting that conversation because it was uh, a good way to kick off the show. But thinking back on what I remember of that conversation, since I couldn't bring myself to go back and listen to it in mm -hmm. full... Um, I don't know that I'm entirely satisfied with the, the way that that conversation went, or at least I wouldn't have the same conversation now that I had back then with eight years of being a film critic under my belt. So are you saying that I'm flying too close to the sun trying to have that same conversation again, no. maybe? No, I, <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, you know, it's funny, you know, in eight years from now, I'll probably, you know, look back at episode number 400 and go, I, I can't really get behind what 2023 Kevin is saying here. Mm -hmm. um, but I guess that's kind of what's, what's interesting, both about movies and about criticism is in some ways, they're both kind of a snapshot in time. Mm -hmm. um, you know, move, a movie will always have the same uh, succession of frames, whether you view it now or whether you view it in 2050. Uh, a review that somebody writes or records uh, in 2015 is going to uh, sound very alien to the same person, you know, looking back out from 2023. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know, I guess that seems kind of fitting. Um, I don't know. I guess I don't, I don't know, really know where I'm going with that. Other than that, it is just kind of, um, it's an interesting experiment to go back uh, to the opinions of your past self and kind of wonder how you would do things differently, word things differently, whether you even think completely differently. So yeah, yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about this with you. Yeah, I think it's interesting and probably also really important, I think, to sort of take stock and then come to an understanding. I'm like you, I can't stand going back and listening to old episodes of Seeing and Believing even two years ago, but that's because I can't stand the sound of my own voice. <laughs> um, so I don't know how you would be able to do it with, I don't know, going back eight years. If you're anything like me, like I would not want to go back just purely on the merits of I would be constantly self-editing and trying to rethink what it was that I had said at that time. And maybe that's a good reason to have conversations like this is because one, it is a snapshot, but two, I think a lot of good criticism is in conversation, not necessarily like always in podcast form, although clearly we both enjoy doing this enough to do it for as long as we have. Um, 
but I think even written crit- written criticism on a certain level is also in conversation both with the movie and then also with some sort of an audience as well. Um, and so it's kind of nice to stop and take stock of that and come to an understanding of what's important in that conversation, because I don't think that you can have a good conversation unless you're working on some form of shared terms. So, yeah. 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 I, I guess the thing that I've really loved about doing seeing and believing is that conversational element. Mm. You know, obviously I've, I've written uh, film criticism as well. And I, you know, I still do. And I plan to do more when we launch our sub stack, mm-hmm. but there's something about, you know, just sitting down across the table, you know, as we are doing now, like physically in the same space or the way Wade and I did it for as long as we did, which was almost entirely over Skype, mm-hmm. you know. Um, the first time I met Wade in person was actually at my wedding, which was, <laughs> which was, you know, like, what, three years? We'd been doing the podcast for two or three years at that point. Mm. So it, but the, but it was still sort of a conversation in the same shared space, even if it wasn't the shared, same shared physical space. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I thought we did so well was kind of, you know, make it not so much about stating my offering an opinion for another person's consideration but you know stating what you think but offering it to another person who can then take it and consider it turn it over and offer uh an angle of their own that causes you not only to understand what they think a little better but maybe understand what you think Mm -hmm. a little bit better as well some of my favorite moments from the show were when you know, Wade would say something that would make me reconsider what my initial reaction to a film was or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was really rewarding. And that was something I think that the podcast medium really got that you don't necessarily get from sitting down and writing a piece Mm -hmm. where you have the chance to revise your opinion in real time in ways that you wouldn't have had the chance to do if you were just say, you know, working with an editor over email or working in a complete solitude. Yeah, I think it might speak a little bit to my own personal sense of of pride and need for humility and that in some ways I almost prefer being able to put out something that is written because then I can massage those words a little bit better and try to make myself understood a little bit better. But the thing that I love about having a podcast conversation is that you're kind of coming to a mutual understanding or not, depending on how bad the (laughs) argument is, in real time. And so grappling with a movie that I don't fully understand or that I had a really difficult time with I really like doing that in conversation and then being able to bring in a whole bunch of other people in as listeners and then hear what they think about it afterwards as well is a big part of that too. It's never really just a conversation between the two of us, even though that's kind of what it feels like because we're sitting across a table from each other as well. Yeah. Well, and we don't, the other big difference between this podcast and writing was that, you know, when we sit down to record every week, we don't have a script. You know, I don't, I, I kind of have a bare outline, maybe some notes that I scribble down about things that I'd like to touch on, but we don't kind of structure out, okay, we want the discussion to go in this direction. It just kind of flows where it will. And sometimes that leads us down some blind alleys. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the time that kind of forces us to, we because we can't plan ahead, we can't you know write from our own outline as you would when you're writing a piece, uh, you kind of have to 
adapt and be surprised by what the other person is saying and maybe the way that you react to what the other person is saying. And that's a lot of fun. And I think that's why, you know, even though I'm excited about the Substack, it's not going to be quite the same mm-hmm. as it was uh, for the last eight years. So I don't know. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's a strange place to be kind of looking back over that time and seeing not just a succession of episodes where, you know, I, I myself as a critic grew, mm-hmm. but also just within those episodes themselves, seeing uh, my own opinion sort of change in response to the feedback that I was getting from Wade or from you. Mm-hmm. I think it speaks to um, my sense of control that in the very early episodes when we did first start, when I first started as a co-host with you, was that I did try writing out absolutely every single point that I wanted to hit. And those episodes probably sound very stiff. I don't know. I haven't gone back and listened to them. I'm not planning on ever doing that. But I think um, one of the pieces where I feel like I've personally grown as a critic a lot is being able to loosen up and try to release a little bit of that sense and need for control because it's not just me monologuing about what I think about a movie. It really is that conversation between the two of us. You know, it, it's it's funny you mentioned monologuing because I think <laughs> it, there's one thing that I kind of learned about myself while doing this podcast. It was that I do have a tendency to sort of, especially when I'm extemporizing, when I'm not working from a an outline, I tend to kind of go and go and go. Mm. And something I, I, I tried to kind of consciously rein that in a little bit so that it wasn't just me babbling for 10 minutes about, you know, whatever thing that happened to occur to me as I was speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was an interesting bit of self-discipline, but it was also a way for me to um, kind of just think about how, how to communicate what I think in a way that isn't just me talking at somebody, but is kind of having that conversation, like you mentioned, where criticism can be a conversation, not so much one person handing down their opinion from on high mm-hmm. or, you know, spraying it like a fire hose, but kind of more offering something and taking something in return. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's been surprising. Um, I've not always been satisfied with the way it, it, an individual episode turns out just because like, there's always something that I would have liked to have said differently. Mm-hmm. Um but I guess that imperfection is also kind of the project of criticism. You don't always get it perfectly. So eight years down the road, you'd go back and do a lot of things differently. But you're not necessarily sorry that it was done imperfectly the first time because that process of improvement is, uh, I don't know, that's part of it too. So I think that kind of leads into something that you and Wade and Josh Larson talked about a little bit in that episode too, which is criticism as a conversation, as opposed to criticism as kind of a consumer report. We're counting swears, we're counting sex scenes, we're counting objectionable content, um, and instead engaging with a movie in kind of a critical way. And I feel like that's sort of always been the ethos of seeing and believing, but I'm curious to know how that's deepened or changed for you yeah i you know i talked earlier about how i wasn't entirely satisfied with the tenor of that conversation not because i think it went poorly or anything but just because i feel like 
at the beginning, at the outset of the show, I think there was always this question that we were trying to answer for ourselves, which is, what does it look like to be a faithful Christian moviegoer? Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest change, even more beyond the conversation thing, because I, I think that has persisted over the life of the show and is, has deepened, and I I don't know that I would go back and say anything differently. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that has changed, I think, is that that question of what does it look like to be a faithful Christian moviegoer, I guess I've become less and less interested in that question. Hmm. Um, not because I don't think it's it's unimportant, but more that I think it if that is the first question you're asking of yourself when you walk into a movie theater, I think it's limiting in a, in a way that you don't need to be limited. Hmm. Um, one thing that I've found as I've journeyed deeper into film criticism, just like loving movies and seeing them, is that I kind of am just curious when I walk into a movie theater. I want to see, I want to see something new. I want to be surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to kind of gain access to a world that. I wouldn't have access to otherwise. And I think a lot of the time, if you if you go into movie, like whether you're going in there kind of with the movie guide, I'm going to count the number of swears and how much skin is shown, mm-hmm. or whether you're going in there as uh, more in the posture of, well, how do I approach this in a Christian way? Or how does this shed light on the Christian faith? It's not so much that that's a wrong way to watch a movie, It's it, but it's more that in coming in with that posture that kind of forecloses a lot of different other avenues to engage with the movie that's unfolding on the screen in front of you. Mm -hmm. And I kind of, I like going in with as, 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 with as much of a blank slate as possible, I guess, Mm -hmm. which doesn't mean I never ask the question of, you know, what does this mean for me as a Christian, this Mm -hmm. film, but more so I want to just kind of watch the film and maybe just have a conversation with it, just it and me um, at that point. And because my faith is a part of me, of course, that informs it. But I'm not like starting off that conversation immediately with what do you have to tell me or teach me about my faith? Or yeah. what do you have to do reveal to me about the glory of God? Like that's something that might come, but that's not sort of... <laughs> The sun, that's not what you lead with, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I I think I'm kind of in a similar boat as you are. And this is something that I started to grapple with, I think, pretty early on in the process of writing Becoming Alien, actually, because I was worried about trying to impose a theology on a series of movies where that theology simply didn't exist. And so... It, it felt as though if I were to try to force these six very distinctive and singular horror movies into a specific box so that they would say what I wanted them to say, then that felt like it was intellectually and theologically dishonest, mm-hmm. both in terms of the theology that I was engaging in and then also kind of creatively dishonest towards those movies as well. Um, I don't know how much I want to ascribe intent to something because I do think that intent of the director and the filmmakers is certainly important. But once that movie leaves that sphere, it also belongs to the audience in a way too. And so the critics engagement with the movie 
is also sort of shaping the meaning of that movie in a way that I find really fascinating because I don't fully understand how that relationship works. I just know that it does. And at the same time, it's very easy to twist and co-opt something to say something that it was never intended to say and that any rational reading of that thing would actually say, if that makes sense. I think we're both Christians. We both know that scripture is very capable of being twisted by people who will use it for nefarious ends. Like it happens all the time, has happened in history, will happen again. And I don't want to be party towards that kind of twisting. And so there is kind of, um, there is a tension, I think, between trying to balance the theological reading that I'm going to bring to a movie just because of the intellectual background that I have and the religious background that I have, and then also understanding that I still need to kind of meet the movie where it is and then try to negotiate the tension between those two points. And that's, I think, where the critical conversation gets really interesting for me personally is because most of the time when I'm engaging with a movie in criticism, written or conversation, it's because I don't understand some part of it and I'm trying to reach that form of understanding. And so approaching it with that question of openness and curiosity and humility that there may be something here that I didn't consider before or couldn't have considered before, I think is is kind of key towards approaching some semblance of seeing movies as a Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to always see a movie as a Christian because that's just what I'm steeped in and who I am. But if I'm imposing that worldview on something that also doesn't have it, then that just feels like I'm trying to force something of my own on something that doesn't actually need it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, so Tolkien nerd alert incoming. And I know you are you are also a huge Tolkien nerd, so yes. you'll be right there with me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one, one of the things that I love about... Um, Tolkien's thought is the concept of subcreation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Tolkien um, in in his fiction um, posited that when the elves uh, created great artifacts of power and tended uh, the Undying Lands and uh, made the world of Arda, Middle Earth, more beautiful. Um, they were engaging in subcreation, which was an intentional echoing of their own creator, um, engaging in their smaller acts of creation with the same joy and love that with which they were created themselves. And obviously, Tolkien, being a Christian himself, saw that as the role of a Christian creative person as well. And I think that that's the the impact of that on what we do here at seeing and believing is kind of twofold. Number one, of course, there's the obvious, um, you know, uh, a person who makes a movie or a, a I'm sorry, a collective of people who make a movie. It's not just one person. Mm-hmm. A collective of people who make one movie are being sub creators themselves. They are engaging in the creative impulse because that's kind of what people do. It's um, one of the things that harkens back to our own creator and is a lovely divine impulse that other creatures don't have. Mm -hmm. And so when you engage with a movie kind of just going in with your arms crossed because you're not sure that you agree with the worldview of these sub-creators, 
or when you try to kind of twist it into a form that it really wasn't meant to have. Um, number one, I think it, you know it's an act of disrespect to the work of these other sub-creators. Number two, as a sub-creator yourself, you are working with the movie to sort of cr- create meaning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if your only goal is to create one kind of meaning and either a work of art fits into it or doesn't fit into it and must be jammed in that direction. Mm -hmm. Um, That's, that's not being a good gardener, I guess, in Tolkienian terms. Yeah. And um, I would like to think that in our work as critics, we are responsible sub creators, both in the work we create, whether it's audio or written. Mm -hmm. Um, and also responsible um, receivers of the uh, sweat of the brow of the sub-creators who make these movies that we love so much. Mm-hmm. It occurs to me, too, that trying to impose one singular meaning on any movie, film, TV show, piece of art, piece of entertainment is also being kind of dishonest about the many different people who are also going to come in contact with it, including the people that we were, say, eight years ago versus the people that we are now. People change and our interpretations of things change. And I feel like my understanding of some movies that I know and love has grown deeper over time. And sometimes I read different things into movies when I watch them at different times too. So the ones that I've found to be the most meaningful are the ones that do have those many layers. And sometimes there are movies that I used to find super meaningful that I don't find meaningful anymore. And that's not to say that those movies never had that value in the first place. It's just that they don't occupy that same space anymore either. So to say that any one movie is going to have that single lesson or moral or meaning or purpose, I think, is a little bit almost disrespectful to the audience that's engaging with that movie too, because there is going to be a wide variety of different ways to view it, interpret it, react to it talk about it in the way that we do and in the way that other critics do and I think that's a good and beautiful thing too because it also means that that level of creativity that can come from that one act of subcreation is also basically limitless and I think that's gorgeous and Mm -hmm. I don't know like that makes me want to keep on having those kinds of conversations as opposed to having a singular this is the right way to view this movie and everybody else is going to be wrong about it you know when somebody makes a piece of art, they're literally um, adding a little bit of embroidery to the creation around them, right? Like mm-hmm. um, a piece of art, once it has been uh, conceived of and brought into the world and shown to others, um, that enlarges the world just a little bit. And um, similarly, when somebody writes or records a piece of criticism kind of unpacking their reaction to that little bit of embroidery they're adding their own little embroidery to the embroidery it's like a fractal i guess and it just it goes on forever and that it it goes deeper and it, it grows larger and i think that kind of enlarging possibility that art carries with it is why i'm i am a critic um and why you know even I you know I I don't think I could ever stop being a critic is because that's that's sort of my own little 
sub-creative impulse, I guess. Uh, I tried <laughs> I tried to write fiction once upon a time. It wasn't so good. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll settle for, you know, uh, look, uh, engaging with other people's uh, fictions and um, finding stimulating ways to share that with other people through my own reactions, uh, maybe, and, and going back to the conversation thing, being curious about their reactions too. Mm-hmm. And the I think that's another thing that has changed so much for me over the last eight years is I think I've become more interested just in what other people think mm. than I was before. Whereas before, I was interested, but I was primarily interested because I liked articulating my own reactions to a piece of art. So it was very much, it was much more about me, I guess. Mm. Eight years on, I am still interested in that because I'm a nerd, and there's nothing a nerd likes more than telling you his opinion about things. Um, but it also, eight years of weekly conversations with another person about what they think mm-hmm. about a movie has enlarged me as well in terms of just my capacity for being interested in that in in engaging with another opinion and not trying to change it or dismiss it. Mm -hmm. I think that speaks to, we've talked a little bit about curiosity being an important quality. I think an important quality as well of engaging with the movies in a specific way is also having that attitude of humility and being willing to admit that you don't understand everything or that you're not going to fully understand something and somebody else might understand another aspect of it. You mentioned um, film criticism sort of as a fractal around a specific movie. And I immediately thought of C.S. Lewis and further up and higher in. I, that occurred to me as well. I was like, I don't want to bring that up because it feels like it comes up all the time. But it sure does. It's hard to avoid. It definitely is. And um, so I made it, you know, explicit for you, I suppose. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's, it's one of those things where I feel like you've been at this for a lot longer than I have too. So I feel like I'm at a slightly different point than you are. And at the same time, I feel like we're kind of simpatico in terms of that sense of being interested in what other people have to say about a movie. And then also being willing to say like, maybe we don't always get it right. Or maybe we don't always understand, but let's figure it out together. That feels like a much more generous way of approaching it than just handing down edicts, I think. Well, and that sort of thing is a natural byproduct of the process. It's not something that you have to go looking for. It kind of just grows out of it. And maybe that's kind of also what I was talking about when I say I'm less and less interested in the question of how, you know, what is, how does it look to be a faithful Christian film goer? If you're a faithful Christian um, and take your faith seriously, then when you go to the movies, you're by definition a faithful Christian film goer. Yes. Um, you don't have to jam a square peg in a round hole to feel like you are doing that. That's that's just something that will naturally grow out of it. When we sit down for a conversation, I don't sit down thinking like, how am I going to have a Christian conversation? I just mm-hmm. have a conversation and it will naturally bend towards uh, the Christian if we're doing it right, if we're engaging with it with our whole selves mm-hmm. and um, allowing whatever grace has been given to us to shine through that, that's just kind of, it just happens. Um, and that's wonderful. And that comes from God and not from us. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think 
limiting conversation, like setting boundaries on how you engage with a piece of arts where it's only in a Christian sphere or where you have to kind of write a an essay about a film that has a thesis statement that ties it back to first Corinthians <laughs> like that's I mean you can do that and it's not that that there's no value in it but it can be so much more than that and I I guess I'm much I I'm kind of interested in in the much more <laughs> And I think that's one of the things that I wrestle with coming out of a Christian tradition that is so focused on those deep reads and on trying to, you know, find God in Lord of the Rings to oh. name a specific book yes. that was very popular when those movies first came out. Um, and I think that it's something where I have a tendency to try to bend something towards Christianity or towards the theology that I'm engaging with. And that is something that I have to consciously actually step back from occasionally. And so I think approaching the movies in a way that is that conversation with the film and with other critics, it's really more of a discipline for me than it is something that comes easily or naturally. Um, so occasionally I find myself falling back into the, like, a little bit of the Jesus juke of what is this thing and how does it connect to the gospel story? And that's something that I do genuinely struggle with on a certain level. And that's something that I feel like I probably always am going to just by nature of the way that I started out writing criticism in general and also engaging with movies when I was in, in high school even um, was trying to figure out what would be worthwhile because it checked all of those boxes or didn't check those boxes, but still told a moral story. And so the act of, I think, moving away from that slightly more legalistic approach towards movies is also something that I have to actively work hard towards. And that feels like a worthwhile way to, I don't want to say redeem my time watching a movie necessarily, but a, a worthwhile way to try to open up and bend towards something that isn't just trying to bend that thing towards me, if that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, tell me if this sounds harebrained to you, but so you talked about, uh, you, you mentioned struggle, you know, there's, there, there's a, a certain element of struggle to, uh, your movie going in your film criticism, they'll probably be with you for, for good, mm -hmm. um, forever. Um, yeah, I think about, you know, the, the commands in the Bible, you know, we're supposed to work out our faith with fear and trembling. Right. Mm -hmm. And the point of that passage, as, as I understand it, I'm not disclaimer, not a theologian, not a pastor, uh, just a guy. Um, but my understanding of that passage isn't that, you're supposed to constantly be afraid that God is going to smite you or that if you do the wrong thing, your faith is ruined. Uh, it's more that you, you have to always be aware that your faith is never done. <laughs> like you, you, it, you're always working at it and you, you always have to be open to the possibility that you are going to mess up and you're going to have to kind of figure out a way to, um, to make it better somehow, mm -hmm. um, to to amend it, to refine it. Um, there's there's all sorts of little wrinkles in that with our faith. My harebrained idea is I think the project of film criticism, at least you know f for me, is similar in that um, 
I do kind of need to check myself that I'm not just sort of saying, well, I'm a Christian, so I can just go see whatever I want. And it's fine. I don't have to worry about the effect it has on my heart. Like mm-hmm. that's, that's something that is real and does need to be taken seriously. It's also not something that I need to obsess over or worry unduly about. And that's kind of like the tightrope you walk where you kind of, you do, it's, it's not one to the exclusion of the other. It's kind of, you kind of balance, you use it as your balancing stick or whatever the tightrope walker uses. You know, you use it as a thing that kind of keeps you on the tightrope and on the straight and narrow. And you kind of trust that in the, at the end of the day, it'll be good because God is with you. Mm-hmm. You don't, you can't necessarily know that for sure. That's what faith is all about. But I think that that's kind of a good way to sort of go about it where you, you can kind of hold both things in tension where, you know, I'm never going to get it perfectly, but I can try it as hard as I can to get at that perfection. That's the fun and that's the work of it. It is work. And uh, yeah, I know it, it, like you said, it is going to be sort of something we struggle with probably for the rest of our lives. It's kind of fun. Sometimes it sucks. <laughs> it's really fun most of the time, honestly. Um, you were mentioning that tension and that tightrope act, and it actually made me think about a movie that you and I went to go see, not for the podcast, but we went and we saw Park Chanuk's Old Boy. Mm-hmm. And that was a movie that I struggled with mightily. And it's one that I am still kind of chewing on in a lot of ways, largely because it is a movie that challenged, you know, what is okay to engage with in a movie, what's okay to engage with in a story. And then also the real world is messed up like this. And we might as well also be able to engage with that in an interesting and artful and thoughtful way in a way that I think the movie does manage to do. Um, and so some of that that fear and trembling is also that leap of faith of I'm going to probably get it wrong on some level, but isn't it interesting to grapple with those big questions instead of just leaving them completely by the wayside and only engaging with the stuff that really only affirms the basics of what we believe too? Yeah, the film criticism undertaken with fear and trembling, but you aren't constantly afraid of doing something wrong (laughs) yeah yeah although i'm down with a little bit of fear as long as it's in a horror movie and in a controlled setting you know yeah i mean that's that's for everybody but it is for me yeah well um yeah i i mean you're also a linguistics person Mm -hmm. so um i'm curious to hear you talk a little bit about that because i feel like i've been talking a lot so (laughs) um you know extemporizing as we said earlier but um, like, is there any way that that discipline of yours informs your whole ethos of I mean, of film going? so much. So I don't know if I've told this story. I don't think I've told this story on the podcast. I don't know how many people are aware of it, but I was a linguistics major in college and in grad school. And my undergrad thesis took a theory of linguistic translation and applied it to adaptations from lit to film. And it was kind of a harebrained sort of um, cross-disciplinary project that I had absolutely no business doing. And I'm very lucky that my professors were good about being willing to do that. But it did start to give me a little bit of a framework about thinking about movies critically, specifically in terms of defining common terms, and then being able to 
have that conversation in a way where two people are able to come to some sort of a common understanding, either having a conversation with the movie itself, because some people will refer to movies as being effectively a language. It's not really a language. You don't actually speak it, but there are conventions that people follow in the same way that you follow conventions for any spoken or written or signed language as well. And the important parts for every conversation um, this is where I get to really pull out my my linguistic nerdiness is so there there are a set of rules that every person has to take with their inter- interlocutor in order to have like a good conversation. So the conversation has to be rational. It has to involve the amount of information that you're expecting to exchange with somebody else. So a conversation like this on a podcast, I actually do expect somebody to talk for a little while because you kind of have to build up that argument as opposed to us just trading a line every so often. That would be way too fast and it wouldn't be a good way to have a rational conversation on a podcast. There's also the amount of quality that you want to have in terms of having that conversation. Um, And so you have to have people People have to essentially follow these. They're not strictly speaking rules because you can violate them. And that's how a lot of jokes are told. And that's how you reach like irony in a conversation. And sometimes you can have a really good conversation that violates all of these these maxims. But you do have to have a common ground and a common understanding that you're either going to follow these rules or you're not going to. And I think that that works really well with criticism too because it is that ongoing conversation where you have to be willing to engage with somebody else and you have to be willing to engage with them and with the movie on those same shared terms otherwise it just simply falls apart and I think we do see this quite a lot in places like I don't know film twitter where nobody's really engaging with anybody in a serious way that actually sees the humanity in the other person on the other side of the Mm -hmm. screen and so I just don't think that that's a particularly good avenue for criticism anymore because no one's willing to have that conversation. They're effectively all just shouting into the void. And that's not a good way to build on somebody else's embroidery, to bring it back to your metaphor from earlier. (laughs) I mean, I, I do feel like we have kind of brought it full circle back again to conversation, just kind of what a great paradigm that is for for film criticism and what for eight years has been a great paradigm for this show um so yeah i don't know i'm i'm happy I, you know it's bittersweet you know i'm i am uh sad that you know the, we are drawing the curtain on seeing and believing the podcast but i do feel like for those eight years um for the 300 some episodes that wade and i were together and then the hundred that you and i have been co-hosting mm-hmm. that i don't know, i do feel like in some in some ways we have kind of achieved that or at least approached that i guess if, if it can't be achieved it could at least be approached and i don't know i i'd like to think that we've done that here on the show I so agree. Yeah. um yeah. Uh, listeners, uh, thanks for, for listening to that lengthy conversation. Timestamp says it was 45 minutes, so <laughs> diving deep on it, but uh, I loved talking about it. Hopefully you loved listening to it. We're going to take a quick break here, then spend a little bit of time reminiscing about our favorite seeing and believing moments, and then share some movies that just won't get out of our heads. So stick around. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, 
what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Kevin and Sarah, wait here. Congratulations on a fantastic and faithful run. It's been a joy to listen to both of you talk about film, not just a subject you both know a great deal about, but a subject you both love. You both genuinely love movies, and that's what makes your criticism so great. As I'm sorting through memories, uh, one of my favorites from the past few years was your review of The Right Stuff. You know, I'm a big fan of that film, and it was just a treat to listen to both of you tackle this. I think you called it a dad movie (laughs) at the time. In general, I just, I love, love, love your watch list segment because I find it incredibly fun to listen to really good critics talk about seeing really good films for the first time. Uh, Kevin, you finally watched the right stuff uh, and your take on it did not disappoint. Sarah, it's been fantastic getting to know you by listening to your, your steady, sharp perspective on the podcast. Your nearly two years on the show has taught me an incredible amount uh, about the world of movies. And I truly believe that you're one of the bright young minds of film criticism today. I also have to give a shout out to Jonathan Clausen, who always helps us keep the sacred on screen. <laughs> a faithful producer all over the years. Uh, we, we appreciate you. I appreciate you. Kevin, I hope you feel celebrated today. Uh, you've been the anchor of seeing and believing for eight and a half years. Uh, It's especially bittersweet to watch you hang up your podcasting hat. Uh, Your thoughts have been a weekly routine for many people for nearly a decade now. But I do hope you know how much your charity, your observations, your wit, your commentary, your eye for a technique mean to your listeners and also mean to me, just personally. You have sacrificed so much to keep seeing and believing going, (laughs) not to mention having to listen to my voice every week for six years. And that sacrifice doesn't go unnoticed, friend. Even though seeing and believing is evolving, Kevin and Sarah, you both can be confident that the podcast will continue with a life of its own. I know the episodes you've created will be uh, treasured, listened to, and debated for years to come. Here's to seeing and believing's future. You'll always have at least one grateful fan in your corner. That voice you heard was, you know, the man, the myth, the legend, Wade making his triumphant return to the seeing and believing airwaves. I I don't know. I'm kind of speechless, to be honest. I Uh, am too. That... You know, a lot of kindness was packed into that, like two minutes or whatever, however long it was. And uh, Wade, thanks so much for for those kind words and the encouragement. Um, it was, you know, it was great re- being your co-host, um, and it's great having you as a listener as well. So thanks a lot. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Wade, and thank you for for those kind words as well. Yeah. So, uh, and, and Wade isn't the only one who's been uh, sending us well wishes lately. Uh, listeners we really appreciate you guys Mm -hmm. um just 
listening to us week in and week out and uh, you know every now and then taking the time to share your own thoughts, whether it's you know Ron Sturry writing us you know lengthy emails about uh, a film that he saw that he just loved and wanted to share with us mm-hmm. um, or just kind of uh, sharing uh, where he agreed or maybe disagreed with us on some of our takes. That's always been nice to see. Uh, we also heard from uh, one of our uh, faithful listeners over on the Twitters. Yeah, Christy Olson um, sent us a tweet that said, Thank you, Wade, Kevin, and Sarah for so many great years of seeing and believing. The podcast introduced me to so many good movies and so many good conversations about movies. I've enjoyed being a longtime listener and interacting all the time. I'll miss that, and it's been fun. So thank you, Christy. That was really kind of you, too. Yeah, and you know, for, for myself, Christy, I have to say I will miss your unflagging support for the Mission Impossible franchise. Yes. Um, if any uh, listeners are looking for a good Letterboxd follow, Christy is on Letterboxd over there mm-hmm. and uh, has, you know, she writes about all the movies she sees, obviously, but uh, Mission Impossible is one of those franchises that she's pretty ride or die for, and I appreciate <laughs> hearing her those thoughts on those. Also very good to have someone in my quarter, corner against uh, you regarding the Mission Impossible movies. I, you know, I, I am the, the show grump. I, I've been the show grump since <laughs> probably episode one. So, you know, somebody's got, it's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. I know I'm doing it. Anyway. I think so. Yeah. Um, again, thanks for writing in, Christy. Um, you know, as we were kind of reading all these well wishes, it kind of did make me, you know, think back about the on the long history that the the show has had and kind of what some of our favorite moments are. Um, so, Sarah, I'm kind of curious to know. Um, you've been uh, on the show for about a hundred episodes now, two years. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any favorite seeing and believing moments that kind of stand out to you in your memory? I actually, I think that you you primed me for um, this one specifically by bringing up Tolkien in the last segment, but I thought our conversation about the Rings of Power, where we both got to go Mm -hmm. along about Lord of the Rings was really good. And we also got to talk about Over the Garden Wall, which is a lovely TV show and it's fall. It's time for Over the Garden Wall again. So once again, we've come full circle there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I, and uh, I, I'm so glad that you introduced me to over Gar- over the garden wall. I'm going to introduce uh, my family to it. Hopefully, uh, this fall, uh, it's a good one for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was thinking, you know, and this is something else we kind of primed ourselves for in the previous segment. We were talking about, you know, the con- conversations and disagreeing with with humility and grace. And weirdly, some a couple of my favorite moments from the past shows were actually the the rare times when uh, I would argue with somebody <laughs> partly because I think it happens so rarely. I don't know if that's just because we're, we're all so nice here on seeing and believing, or if it's just, we just have similar tastes, but you know, strong disagreements are more the exception than the rule mm-hmm. on the show. Uh, so when they do come along, it's kind of fun to, you know, take the, take off the gloves and spar a little bit. Uh, way back in the 136th episode was, I think, Wade's my most most intense disagreement over the shape of water. Where oh, yeah. I, th- I remember becoming almost inarticulate with how much I couldn't believe that Wade not only just was kind of eh on the shape of water, but actively disliked it, whereas it was one of my favorite movies of the year. And I just... I, it was like a real do not compute moment. I just couldn't believe it. Yeah, that episode is the stuff of seeing and believing legend. Like I remember when that came 
um, and yeah, that's that's a good conversation. Um, we haven't disagreed too much. I feel like most of the time we're on slightly different levels of agreement or somewhat disagreement, but mm-hmm. not too too strong. Um, but the evening that we talked about face off, I had also just had a, a spectacular argument with a good friend of mine about face off where. When I argued with my friend about it, I was defending the movie. And then when I argued with you about Face Off, I feel like I was being really down on the movie and you were supporting it. And that was a really interesting conversation because it made me reconsider a few things. But I still maintain, not a movie for me. Mm, see, see, I think the the fact that you found yourself kind of torn and ambivalent in that way where you were first <laughs> defending it and then talking it down, I think that might be your heart telling you something, that you need to give in to the good news of Face Off, Sarah. <laughs> I mean, where there's life, there's hope, I suppose. Yeah, still not for me. (laughs) Um, I also wanted to uh, throw a shout out to, it's not really a moment that happened on the air, but it was related to the show. Um, Way back in episode 26, Wade and I, yeah, yeah, really old school. um, We reviewed a Bobcat Goldthwaite documentary, Call Me Lucky. It's Mm -hmm. uh, a... a story, uh, it, it's kind of a documentary about Barry Crimmins, a stand-up uh, comedian and activist um, who's just a, a really interesting guy. Very principled, very firebrand, capable of like extreme anger and prickliness, but also very capable of warmth. Mm. And we we witnessed that warmth firsthand because, yeah, that was episode 26. We were tiny. Nobody knew we existed, but somehow... Barry Crimmins heard our review of the documentary that was about him, and he actually left a comment on the website in the little comment box underneath the episode, just sharing his thoughts about how he, you know, um, you know, he he wasn't a person of faith himself. He didn't consider himself a Christian, um, and he was very frank about that, both in the documentary and in his comment. But yet he he also said that he did appreciate how Wade and I were able to take that. antipathy that he had for the faith in stride mm. and it, it it was a just a moment of it i took it as extreme kindness like he he didn't have to reach out to these nobodies making a christian podcast and yet he did and i honestly think like if he hadn't made that comment i don't know that seeing and believing would have like that that was the moment for me i guess when i was like oh this is this is a project that i can keep doing mm. it was a huge hugely encouraging moment to me and kind of like maybe a foretaste of the way that uh, thoughtful criticism can be like build small little bridges. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I it's just something that stuck in my mind over the years. That's really lovely. I don't think I'd heard that story before. Yeah, he uh, he unfortunately died. I think in 2018. But mm. yeah, um, really remember Barry and uh, hope he's he's at peace wherever he is. Yeah. So those are the seeing and believing show memories that have stuck with us. Stick around, listeners, for the next segment. We're going to talk about some movies that we just can't shake here in a little bit. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
So now's the time of the show where I want to say that it's time for the watch list. Which <laughs> Old habits die hard. They definitely do. And in this case, usually with the watch list, I feel like um, each host picks a movie that has stuck with them in some sort of a way. And we want to have another conversation about it. And we want to share it with somebody who hasn't seen that movie before. That wasn't always the case with the watch list, but I feel like it was most of the time that was something that we would do. And so we figured it would be a good way to close out the show by talking about the movies that have stuck with us and that we are currently thinking about right now at this moment. This isn't necessarily our favorite movies. This isn't necessarily like the movies that turned us into critics, but these are the movies that we are actively thinking about, actively wrestling with, actively chewing on, the movies that are shaping the way that we think about movies at this point in time. So, Kevin, I'm curious to know what movies have been rattling around in your brain. I mean, it's not going to surprise anybody that a Kurosawa movie is going to be one of these. <laughs> like, yes. I'm a Kurosawa fanboy, and uh, I've been beating that drum uh, since the beginning of the show. And um, there's probably... I, it, it might be a slight exaggeration to say that not a day goes by when I'm not thinking about some Kurosawa movie. Maybe a slight exaggeration, but only a slight one. Mm. Um, I I just find him such an indelible filmmaker in so many different ways. The The stories and the images just rattle around in my head all the time. The one that does that the most, I think, is his 1950 film Rashomon. Mm. It's just, it's a movie, it's less than an hour and a half long, and yet there's so much complexity in it. There's so much in it that has to say about the human condition, um, not just the human condition like in a cosmic sense, but also just the human condition, just like being alive, what it is like to be a person with a perspective and desires and how those things can um, lead you down some bad roads, how they can also lead you to some moments of grace, like the... The finding of the infant child in the storm mm -hmm. is uh, a moment where we've 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 spent the entire movie kind of seeing how truth seems like it can't be found, and they find the baby in the storm, and the storm lets up, and you get the sense that maybe the truth can't be found, but there are some certainties maybe, and I find that inspiring, and. I also just find individual sequences to be just, I, I can't stop thinking about them just because I, I I turn them over and over in my head trying to kind of like get to the bottom of them. Like that famous series of shots where each of the three primary characters in the, in the inciting incident look from one to the other. They're standing in a circle, they're gazing from one to, to another, and we get to see each one of them from the other's perspective. The way Kurosawa shoots that is masterful and just is this tidy visual encapsulation of we all see things just a little bit differently. We all see others a little bit differently. And while we're doing that, they're doing the same thing. Hmm. And I think that that's a good reminder for, for those of us who especially kind of make a profession out of engaging with perspectives unlike our own and, and just try, trying to get to the bottom of them as well. It's 
something I, I think about all the time. Yeah, I'm struck by that description because it feels so much of a kind with what we were just talking about in the previous segment as well. That's an incredible movie too. Yeah, it yeah. sure is. What What about you? Uh, what are some of the, what's one of the movies that you've got oh, rattling man. around? I have so many movies rattling around in my brain. And um, Michael Mann's movies, I, I don't think I've met a single Michael Mann movie that I haven't liked. Mm-hmm. I really like a lot of them, but the one that I think surpasses all of the others at this point is his 1995 masterpiece, Heat, which um, is kind of a cops and robbers story. It's a bit of an epic. It's It's a long and... Languorous is not the right word for it, because this movie really moves. It does not feel like it is the three plus hours that it actually is. But it features this central relationship between a bank robber played by Robert De Niro and the detective who's been chasing him played by Al Pacino. That is just such an interesting push pull of two men who are two different sides of a very similar, if not the same coin, who are incapable of doing anything than what it is that they're currently doing, much to the detriment of everybody else around them. And it's that level of obsession and attention to detail that I think Michael Mann brings to his own movies as well. So he feels almost like a self-examination and a taking stock of what the cost is of dedicating your life to being really, really good at just one thing. I think a lot of man's protagonists are those stereotypical men who are really good at one specific job. And usually it's a job that is not necessarily the most nice job there is. And man manages to communicate the particulars of those jobs and make us understand why they're so interesting without overly romanticizing them, I think. He comes very close in some of his other movies. Um, But in Heat, it's so perfectly balanced that this is a push-pull between two men who don't know how to do anything else, who are kind of stuck in a loop of consequences and actions and reactions in a way that is eventually going to end up leaving at least one of them dead. And both of them know that. And yet they're unable to let go. It's like two, I don't know, deer who have their antlers locked together. And man manages to tell that story with, I think, pretty extraordinary grace and sympathy towards both of those characters, while also recognizing that both of them are capable of doing some pretty terrible wrong. And he still extends them that grace anyway. I think about the final shot of Heat Mm. all the time. It's just one of those shots that caught me off guard when I first saw the movie. I had no idea it was coming. And it's really just a moment of two men holding hands and kind of standing underneath an open sky in a very desolate area that has been kind of, it's been developed, but nobody's there. And it's just a place for vehicles to go and to pass through. And both of these men are passing through their own lives and then through the lives of other people in a way that is going is going to lead down a bad end and man manages to hold them in that tension in a way that i think is just really good and beautiful yeah it's a place that's been developed and yet it's overgrown with weeds yes it's it's i i love that that hadn't occurred to me until you mentioned it and you're absolutely right that the the setting is really like really wonderful that i think about that ending all the time too Mm -hmm. the cut to black is probably one of my favorite edits in 
all of cinema. I I just if it it just it cuts on the perfect millisecond for it to cut. Yes. And it's there's something magical about that. And that, I don't know, that that's what I love about movies is you can get those little magical moments where if just one thing had just been a millisecond off or just a little bit different, somebody had delivered the line slightly differently, it wouldn't be nearly the same. And yet that lightning is there in the bottle and it's captured in the bottle for forever for mm-hmm. us to enjoy and rewatch over and over. I probably shouldn't admit to this while I'm being recorded, but I would probably do crimes to see that scene on the big screen. <laughs> there was... Uh, the the music box had a a revival screening of Heat recently, and I didn't make it. And I'm kicking myself because I would love to see it on big screen too. I, I think that was a couple of years ago, actually, because it happened the same week that I got my second dose of my vaccination. So I still wasn't technically safe uh-huh. to be out in public yet, and yep. I was dying to go see it and also couldn't go so yeah yeah at some point if they show it again we should go (laughs) covid took so much from us (laughs) (laughs) oh man Uh, i mean yeah not not to not to go from that note to something a little bit more down but um i do want to throw a shout out to a couple more movies that um have really stuck with me and you know we we kind of conceive this as sort of a top three list of sorts but in the spirit of Sarah Welch Larson, I am not going to abide by those strict uh, rules We'd of list making. <laughs> I am going to fudge it and kind of put two movies here in my second spot. Mm. And, and there's a defense. They're kind of companion pieces to each other. I'm thinking of Joshua Oppenheimer's documentaries from 2012 and 2014, respectively, The Act of Killing and The Look of Silence. Mm. I think about these movies so much because I I think a lot of who I am as a moral creature um, has been very influenced by these two films. Um, the way that they are able, the way that they have captured human evil, I think is remarkable and completely singular. I don't know of any other movie that has quite managed this trick where the evil is both absurd and frightening and mundane Mm. somehow all at once the way that the act of killing has these florid hollywood recreations of these horrific murders that these two uh thugs perpetrated uh during a political revolution um that's it's funny to watch them like it's 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 silly these guys mythologizing themselves and making movies about themselves where they're you know dressed in drag or they're in this outlandish setting or they conceive of themselves as like noir heroes Mm. um but it's also frightening because that's the way they conceive of their evil is as a movie um I think there, there's there's something about that quint, quintessence of evil that these movies capture where it is a very human-sized evil. It's not a cosmic evil. It's not like it, Oppenheimer doesn't try to make these men seem like monsters or that the devil made them do it or they're possessed. They're just people. Mm-hmm. They're ordinary people like you and me. They have foibles. They are vain. They are silly. Um, they want what they want and they think what they think and they do it all over again. One of them literally says, says that in the look of silence is Mm -hmm. that 
these horrible murders where he disemboweled people on the on the banks of a river. He thought he was doing the right thing, and he would do it again, and he thinks he should be rewarded with a trip to America. Wow. And if that doesn't make your skin crawl and make you want to repent of every other every sin you've ever committed, I think you need to watch the movie again because I it's it's just there there's there are a few movies that have had that effect on me. The way, especially Look of Silence, felt like I was being pressed back into my seat when I was watching it. There's something about it that is weighty in a way that I don't get from a lot of movies. Um, and obviously the way <laughs> if the way I'm talking about now hasn't clued you in, it's it's still sticking with me and and haunting me and making me want to be a better person and making me want others to be better people as well because this is the world that we all live in. Mm. Um yeah, so <laughs> not easy move not easy movies to watch, but essential movies to watch. Yeah. I have not seen either of those. Um and they're ones that I would like to grapple with sometime, but they sound incredibly heavy at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're rough, yeah, but they're they're so good. Yeah, it's funny that you mention kind of the absurdity and and frightening mundanity of evil because one of the other movies that I brought to this list is one that I think captures that in a completely different way. Um. I had the opportunity to catch up with the entirety of Sam Raimi's Evil Dead trilogy fairly recently. Um, I think it happened at some point last year. And this year's Evil Dead Rise is, no joke, the 2023 movie that I've thought about the most this entire year. Even more than Showing Up or even more than Godland, which both of those are very good, incredible movies, and I do think about them. But... I've been thinking about the way that the Evil Dead movies manage to make that evil seem both very frightening and also very banal at the same time. And I think it comes down to the perspective that those movies are playing with. I don't actually know if you've seen any of the Evil Dead movies. I'm not entirely so, sure. So uh, in the first segment, I, I mentioned that you know uh, I, I don't go to see just any movie just because like I think I'm a Christian. It's okay. The Evil Dead movies, there's something about the violence in them. Yeah. From what I know of them, I've, I haven't seen them. Mm -hmm. Caveat. Um, but the... The, the impression that I get from descriptions of the violence and, and the, the overall tenor of the films makes me think that maybe these movies aren't for me. Yes. So I, I have avoided them up to this point. And I'm not going to try to convince anybody to watch them because they are certainly not for everybody. I think that there is a level of almost cartoonish like Bugs Bunny glee about some of this violence and the way that it is put together on the screen that I do find genuinely upsetting and unsettling, which is part of the reason why I think these movies has, have stuck with me. But they get at a sense of morality in horror movies that I don't think most slasher movies or most horror movies tend to get at. So slashers in particular, I think, can tend to be very almost puritanical about who survives and who doesn't. You have this trope of the final girl who is the last person who usually survives to the end of the movie. And typically she is the only person who hasn't done anything wrong throughout the entire runtime. And her entire goal is to simply survive the night. Within the Evil Dead movies, um, most of the characters who populate these films are not particularly great people. 
And the ones who make it to the end aren't necessarily the most morally upright out of everybody within the film. But there is also not this sense of if you sin, you're going to die that you get from a lot of other horror movies. So there is this very common trope, especially in 80s slashers, where if two characters have sex, then they're going to be the first to go. And there is this ongoing sense of morality throughout a lot of these other movies where the moment somebody wanders off or the moment that somebody violates some unspoken rule that everybody knows about, they're going to be the next ones to die. And in the Evil Dead movies, the people who go are just people. And you kind of have to grapple with that and the nature of the fact that the evil in Evil Dead does not care about morality, and it does not care about the comfort of any of the other characters that it's messing with. Like, evil in Evil Dead is petty. And I find that an interesting thing to grapple with, specifically because it's so completely divorced from most of the other moral codes of other horror movies that I've engaged with. And it's done in a way that is actually like really well crafted. I think that there's a high level of attention to detail and a high level of paying attention to practical effects that I particularly enjoy. And the thing that I keep wrestling with and the thing that keeps me coming back is Evil Dead Rise was a genuinely fun movie for me to watch. I was laughing out loud through quite a lot of it. And I'm unsettled by that fact. And so that's something that I keep coming back to. I feel convicted by my own response to it. And I had a lot of fun with it at the same time. And on one level, I don't really know what to do with that. And on another level, it was a really well put together horror movie that was a fun time at the movie theater. And those two things are in tension with each other. It sounds, that description right there sounds kind of exactly like the way that I view RoboCop, (laughs) which is also Mm -hmm. a very violent movie um very much a genre piece um very fun to watch and also a movie that very intentionally kind of like makes you kind of you know gives you a good time and then kind of leaves you with the sense that maybe it shouldn't be as good of a time as it was like maybe maybe there's something up with that Mm -hmm. um that's it's an interesting tension for a movie to create that in the viewer and not to be dismissed I don't know if I'm ever going to watch Evil Dead, <laughs> yeah, but... I'm not trying to sell you on it by any stretch. I, I find that take on on its violence compelling. Hmm. Thank you. <laughs> no, <laughs> you're, you're welcome. Curious. Hopefully, hopefully uh, that'll, that'll do instead of actually doing it for a watchless segment. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I would not force anybody to watch any of the Evil Dead movies. It's, it's funny. My husband and I watch a lot of movies together, and occasionally I'll go off and I will watch a horror movie, and we have this unspoken agreement that most gory horror, not for him. So those are movies that I watch by myself, and then I find somebody else to talk about them with. So... Fair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Keep the you you keep the dog close though, so you're not oh, just yeah. by yourself in the dark watching Evil Dead. <laughs> no, Sophie's the perfect uh, horror movie companion. <laughs> yeah, sounds like it. Mm-hmm. So m- the last movie I'm going to bring up here um, before we kind of transition out, and I'm I, I feel like I'm kind of stretching this a little bit because I almost don't want the episode to end, but mm-hmm. it, it it always has to. Is it, it's a little movie. It's a short film. It's a short. It's an animated short. Um, 
it it wasn't nominated for an oscar um and yet i think about it a lot um it's what my you know my user avatar on you know twitter and letterboxd is is, a, is an image from this film um and i would never have seen it if i hadn't just gone to see one of the animated shorts programs at the chicago international film festival hmm. um and it's uh jeremy and i'm not french so i apologize if i'm butchering his name uh jeremy clapin uh his 2008 uh, short film Skizign again, not French. Might be mispronouncing it. Um, you know, it's just this this ten minute movie about that, that basically takes seriously the figure of speech that uh, about being beside yourself. Like if you're really upset, you're beside yourself. And this animated short basically takes that and literalizes it. A man who uh, gets struck by a meteor and finds that he is existing like three meters from himself or three feet from himself and what that does to his life and also kind of the way it changes his whole understanding of the world um i think it's a tremendous short film it's 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 poignant it's effective the animation is wonderful the scenario is wholly original but i think i i like it because you know if you think about memories as um like a, if, if our memories are like pebbles in our pockets, um, we can reach into our pocket anytime and sort of like hold one of those pebbles in our hands, right? And, and remember something or remember the shape of that pebble. The more we do that, though, the more the pebble gets worn down, the more it's smoothed away, the more that we kind of don't feel the edges that we originally felt when that pebble was new, when the memory was fresh. And I think what a movie like Skizine does is it kind of reminds you of what the pebble felt like originally, you know, like I, I don't, uh, have, I don't, I don't suffer from mental illness of the kind that is, uh, hinted at in this film. Hmm. Um, but I've kind of experienced that similar kind of angst that is depicted in this film. And it's easy for me sort of like when you're alone in your own head, those sorts of impressions and feelings can kind of become so commonplace that you just kind of accept them as the wallpaper of your life and watching a short film like this kind of refreshes it for me in an interesting way that just i don't know it like i mentioned earlier it just kind of enlarges the world a little bit and um i don't know i and i would never have seen it if i just hadn't gone to that shorts uh program at a film festival somewhere and i think that's also something that I think about it a lot because it's a treasure I'm I could easily have never found, and there's so many treasures out there in the in the world of movies that I don't know I, I like the search and it, it kind of thinking about this film reminds me to keep up the search too. Yeah, that's a good reminder, and it's a lovely movie. Like it does so much in ten, eleven minutes, twelve minutes, I think. Yeah. Um, with a very limited color palette, if I'm remembering right, it's almost completely green and black. Yeah, uh, greens, blacks, browns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, very muted. Beautifully animated, very surprising movie. I think so. Yeah, it, that's a good pick. Yeah, we'll have to. I'll have to. Maybe in the show notes, we can put a link to the Vimeo, so you can actually watch it for free. Uh, and and uh, it's 
worth the 10 minutes of your time. We definitely should. I think we should also just make a letter, but this is an on-air production meeting. Um, also trying to stretch out um, a little bit of this time left too, but I think we should put a letterboxed list together of the of the movies that have been sticking with us too. Yeah. I think that that would be a good thing to have a record of. Um, so my final pick is a movie that I, I genuinely don't know if there's a single day that goes by that I'm not thinking about it. And it's Andre Tarkovsky's Stalker which is a movie that I saw right around the same time that I really started seriously engaging with film. I saw it at the music box. I saw a 4K restoration, did not know what I was in for. So my my husband, Josh, and I had gone to the music box the day before and we saw Tarkovsky's Solaris, had never seen a Tarkovsky movie before, didn't know what to expect. And we loved it so much that we went back the next day and we saw Stalker. And it's on its face a very simple film because it's just about four men entering a zone that has been touched by some outside power. Could be aliens, could be some sort of magic. It's it's not made entirely clear by the movie and it doesn't really need to be. But these these three men enter the zone and their goal is to reach a room that will grant them their innermost wish. And they spend the entire time going through the zone in this very convoluted path talking about what it means to them in order to be able to undertake an action like this. And that's basically it. That's that's all that happens as Stalker is, is these three men enter the zone, they walk, they talk, they encounter things that may or may not necessarily actually be real. And I think the beauty of the movie is that it's more in the hinting and allusions than it is in making it expressly explicit what is going on around these men and they're just talking about theology and what it means to be called to bring other people into this space together and it's a very combative conversation almost the entire time but it's also very slow and it's very meditative the movie tested my patience the first time i saw it i almost got up and left in the first 20 minutes and then there is a moment in the film where the film stock shifts from this sepia color to lush green and full color. And in that moment, one, I knew was, I was in good hands, and two, I didn't know what I was going to see for the rest of the film. And it, it's the kind of movie that just sort of puts you in a trance and, and brings you along with it if you have the patience for it. Um, I think about it all the time. I think about the way that it depicts the idea of calling, specifically calling to shepherd other people along a path that they may not necessarily understand. I think it's a movie that pastors and priests should watch, honestly, because there is so much resonance between what the titular stalker who's shepherding these other two men through this zone is doing and what I think a good pastor should do, mm. especially because he's kind of a holy fool figure. It's, it's a Soviet movie. It's a Russian movie. And so it's drawing a lot on Russian Orthodox theology. And this is a man that nobody else understands. He doesn't understand himself. He just knows that he's been called to bring people to this room. And he's afraid of that calling. And yet he goes out and he does it anyway. Mm. It's beautiful. And it's haunting. I don't fully understand it. It tests my patience every time I've watched it. And it's still well worth the sit and it's well worth the contemplation. So Andre Tarkovsky's Stalker is mm. a powerhouse of a movie. <laughs> yeah, barn burner of a recommendation too. Yeah, I guess we can consider this segment kind of like the 
the mother of all watch list segments, like three movies for everyone to go out and watch rather than just one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I need to give Stalker another chance. I, I have seen it, but I was definitely not in the right uh, headspace to appreciate it. Mm. Um, I, so I, I almost don't count it as a viewing because it I, it just doesn't seem right to to do that. So I need to go back and revisit it. And I want to even more now that I've heard you give me the hard sell on it. We'll have to talk about it after you do see it too. Yeah, maybe uh, an, a future edition of the Substack, perhaps. Excellent. Yes. <laughs> oh, man. Well, that, yeah, trying to stretch it out. Don't want it to end. But I think maybe to close out this final episode of the show, um, Maybe we can just kind of thank some of the people uh, who have made the show possible for us to make. Yes. Um, over the years, and um, and yeah, maybe go out on go out on that note, kind of on note of gratitude, I guess. Uh, Sarah, who who do you who do you have to thank? Um, I mean, so many people. Jonathan Clausen, our, our fearless producer, um, who has every week helped us to sound good helped us to keep the podcast up and running um jonathan we appreciate you so much um thank you for all of the work that you've been doing um thank you to wade for bringing me on to guest the very first time that i ever guested on the podcast um we talked about ready or not and we talked about the last black man in san francisco and that was a really good conversation and i'm glad that he gave me the opportunity to join in because i don't think i would be sitting here across from you if it weren't for wade so could be yeah definitely um and then also i i kind of i want to thank our spouses i don't know if kylie listens to the podcast i know my husband does not listen to the podcast because we talk about what we're going to talk about ahead of time mm-hmm. um but my husband josh and your wife kylie are both wonderful for giving us the time and the space to be able to sit down across from each other for an hour plus every single week and talk about movies. So I appreciate them both very much for that. Yeah, those those are all good things to think. I, I want to add to that, um, you know, the the crew at Christ and Pop Culture, we are part of the Christ and Pop Culture podcast network. We have been for eight years. And uh, the, the head honchos over there are, are also really responsible for kind of like giving first Wade and me and then you and me this platform to begin with. They, they help promote the show. They help build it. Um, Richard Clark, Alan Noble, and Jason Moorhead um, are kind of like they, they've done so much to to lead Christ and Pop Culture and also to kind of shape the podcast network into what it is. We couldn't have done Seeing and Believing without you guys. Thanks so much. I want to throw out a shout out to uh, Josh Larson. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, he you know he helped us kick off uh, the show in earnest you know way back when by agreeing to you know come on when we were just nobody's um and uh he's been you know a a faithful supporter of the show just like you know listening and and commenting and and sometimes sharing episodes it's been much appreciated josh uh i also consider josh like a role model for uh we've already talked about how this might not be the the foremost issue that needs to be in the mind of a christian film critic but i think I, i i consider josh a model of what faithful christian film criticism can look like so um yeah josh thanks so much for listening and and supporting the show over the years obviously thanks to jonathan and wade without whom this show probably would have never made it past episode 20 (laughs) like (laughs) if i'm being perfectly honest um and definitely want to thank kylie my wife as well um because without her you know the show wouldn't have made it past episode 100 and you know she does so much to make sure that I can keep doing this. So thanks so much, Kylie. And finally, uh, for last but certainly not least, all of our listeners out there, 
if you've stuck with this this episode for this long, uh, I, I want to make sure to thank you. You are the kind of the ones that help make this show possible as well by you know talking with us, by just listening, by giving us a reason to make the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. We just really appreciate all of you guys for you know whether you you listen, uh, whether you write in. Um, whether you pledge to our Patreon campaign, you you guys are the real heroes in some ways. And uh, yeah, we couldn't have done it without you either. So thanks so much for tuning in week in and week out over the last eight years. Yeah, when we say we like to keep the conversation going, we do mean that in earnest. And it has been wonderful and frankly, really humbling to hear from all of you listeners out there who have been engaging with our criticism, I think, in good faith. So thank yeah, you. Ab- absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, going to be going to be hard to kind of leave that interaction behind, but hopefully, um, if you go over to seeingandbelieving.substack.com and subscribe, there's ways you can interact with us on there, and we yes. can keep that going. Maybe not over a podcast, but maybe over a newsletter. One hundred percent. Yeah. So thanks again so much for tuning in, man. You know, <laughs> uh, this is this is the end. I guess you know I've I've seen and said things. <laughs> You wouldn't believe my Twitter feed on fire after I admitted that I don't like 2001 A Space Odyssey. (laughs) My impromptu impersonation of Heath Ledger's Joker during some downtime while Wade was away from the mic. A soundproofed booth constructed out of a laundry rack and some blankets on my coffee table. All of these moments will be lost, like tears in rain. Sarah... Time to hit the stop button. This episode was brought to you in part by The Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.